We resume today in our study of Matthew by picking up where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount with chapter 7, verse 1. And today we will be reading the first 12 verses, which gets us to the end of the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. More about that in a moment. But hear now the words of God through the pen of the Apostle. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, which both encourages us and convicts us. Lord, we ask that in all ways we would submit to your revealed will, that we would cry out to you with all of our heart, And that we would seek the kingdom above all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, as I was saying before I read, today we come to the end of the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. The words at the end of verse 12, for this is the law and the prophets 
brings to summation that topic which he began back in chapter 5, verse 17, when he entered into the main body with his thesis statement, he began, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he gives the great statement in 520 that if we are to inherit the kingdom, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so what has been transpiring since then is an exposition of what it looks like to have a surpassing righteousness that takes into account the true orientation and depth and requirement of the law. And he brings this topic to close in verse 12 of chapter 7 by revealing that this grand statement of ethical being beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7 is nothing less than the keeping of the second great commandment summarized here in what we call the golden rule. Verse 12 is the summary statement of this entire section. Okay? The golden rule. Um, every major religion has, has their slight take on the golden rule. Um, I'm going to read it to you the, for the four key non-Christian religions in the world. Here's what Hinduism says. One should never do something to others that one would regard as an injury to one's own self. Here's Buddhism. Hurt not others in ways you yourself would find hurtful. Here's Judaism. That which is hateful to you, do not do to another. Here's Islam. That which you dislike being done to you, don't do to others. Do you know what those four religions and their take on the golden rule all have in common that is contrary or at odds with what Christ says? All four of them are stated in the negative. And they're simply don't do harm or don't do evil that you don't want done to you. Does Christ say simply don't do evil that you don't want done back to you? No, Christ's command is a positive call to do good. Um, don't make a mistake about it. There's a huge gulf between simply do no harm and positively seek out the good. And that is what Christ calls us to, to seek out the good. Now, I'll be honest, when I looked at this passage, um, the first several verses, I wasn't excited about. I'll be honest, I'm going to be totally honest, since I've been a teenager, I've heard nothing but this passage abused, right? Judge not. You know, the godless use that verse. They, they hijack the teaching of Jesus, rip it from context, and try to weaponize it as if he's on the side of ethical and moral relativists. Okay? And I've heard, and you've all heard all of the, the right teaching. But still, this is the word of God, and so whether or not you're enthused or not is beside the point. Our job is to joyfully accept the word of God. But I'll tell you what did interest me when I was first looking at this passage. Look at the beginning word of verse 12. 
So, in other words, verse 12 is serving as the punchline, the summary statement of what is just before it. And what is just before it? Verses 7 through 11 are a protracted statement on prayer. So riddle me this. What about a statement on prayer and how we should persist in prayer is such that the logical summary statement and punchline of a teaching on prayer is that we should do to others what we want done to us. But then I saw that there's a flow from verse 1 to verse 12, but verse 12 being the punchline, we're going to look at it in reverse because the heart of this section is the statement on prayer. You want to understand why and how we, we avoid being judgy, but yet we maintain the discernment to, to, tell, what, to tell who is pig and who is dog? which is a highly judgmental statement, I might add. And Jesus is no idiot. He put it there right after there for a reason. But how do we do that? How do we avoid being judgy but maintaining discernment and bring it all the way full circle to treating others as we want to be treated? Well, prayer is the key. And the section on prayer is the heartbeat. Look back over the Sermon on the Mount. Every single chapter includes a statement or a section that talks about prayer. And, and right there, you got to feel that persistent teaching of Jesus. You got to feel that. You tell what's important many times by how frequently it's addressed. You know when you have a friend and, 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 and every time you know that you're going to talk to them, you know they're going to talk about this subject because that's important to them. So there's coming out and saying this is important and then there's realizing something's important because it's persistently referenced. Prayer is at the very heart of the godly life because in prayer we find and confess our utter dependency. In prayer, we acknowledge God's right to be God and his right to direct, control, order all reality, including our own. And so, prayer being the heartbeat, it indeed directs and orders and flows how we relate to the broader world. So, the summary statement of the ethical teaching is found in verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this is the law and the prophets. This summary statement, which is echoed in the religions of the world due to the moral law of God written on our heart, we find that it flows logically from a teaching on prayer. Why? Because when we pray, 
as these words remind us, we are fundamentally coming before a God with our needs and our neediness with an expectancy to be heard. And you know what the good news is for us, brothers and sisters? You can pray confident that you are heard. Let me say that again. When you pray, you can pray confident that you are heard. I know, but there are many times it sounds like your voice echoes off the ceiling and it goes no higher. But your Father who is in heaven has heard your voice. And not only can you pray knowing that you have been heard, but the reason you pray with your needs and your neediness is not just because he's a God of power and might who is capable but he is a God who has a disposition of benevolence. He is a God who delights in meeting the needs and satisfying the longings of his children. And so Jesus reminds us that even we who are wicked know how to give good things. And even we who are wicked and love imperfectly know how to love our children and give them blessed things. So if we who are wicked, then how much to a greater degree must it be that God who is not wicked and imperfect and, and, and finite like we are, he's capable of giving us all we need. So what's the extraction pull away from that? God interacts with us who are utterly and completely unworthy of his time or attention, and yet he lavishes benevolence upon us day in and day out. We are the recipients of divine mercy and benevolence every moment of our lives, and we come to the Lord acknowledging this because he is so overflowing in goodness. So therefore, the summary statement of verse 12, you go and do likewise. You go before God and experience nothing but benevolence. You go, therefore. And when you're interacting with people, you imitate his character. And you do the good that you want done to you. Do you, do you see the logical flow of that? So prayer shapes and directs and orders how we react and interact in a world because this isn't pie-in-the-sky academic lecturing here. Our lives are filled with difficulty, toil, and trouble. And the things that we come before God with are those troubles, are those toils, all of those fears and worries, and, and they're played out in the matrix of relationships with other human beings. And oftentimes we perceive that it's the other, 
who is the roadblock or the adversary from us getting the thing that I think I'm needing, that I'm therefore going to God with. So what does it look like to then, because this world is hard and relationships are messy and, and things get ugly and, 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 and I have real physical needs, material needs that must be met or I will die. To have physical and embodied creatures here. But yet I'm not trusting or fearing or worrying because I'm turning to the Lord. And regardless of how my flesh might perceive that you might either be a, a help or a hindrance, regardless of how my flesh might perceive it, I know that you really aren't the obstacle. You really aren't the instrument. The Lord is the giver of every good thing. And that frees me up intrinsically then to not look at you like a, like a tool to be used or an obstacle to be overcome. And I can look at you as just another creature on the way to eternity. And I'm going to do you the good that I want done to me. Because my God lavishes that kind of goodness on a wretched creature such as me. And so, the summary statement we find anchored in the centrality of prayer, which is the middle section. But then that same middle section, looking back to the opening section about judgmentalism, is what grounds and orients us there rightly as well. Everything I've just said, now, Bear that in mind so I don't have to repeat it for the sake of time. And we have a world in which we see other people and man, oh man, the flesh can hardly resist being judgy, can it not? And I hope we're all mature enough to understand that what Jesus is condemning and commanding against here is not real bona fide judgment. In fact, in John 7, 24, he says to judge, just not by outward appearances, but to judge in accordance with righteousness. We have to make judgments. Paul commands judgment inside the church for discipline's sake. Okay, he's not command, condemning and commanding against all judgment. He's not calling us to be naive, gullible suckers. He's not telling you, hey, if you come home and it's 10 o'clock at night and you see a, the shadow of a person moving in the bushes by your front door, you know, just walk up to it. Don't be judgy. No, he's not saying that. But he is saying to not be judgmental. And we feel that, don't we? When we think of judgmentalism, when we think of the, the kind of things that he's, he, he's talking about, those, those hasty, 
usually petty, oftentimes ill-informed, usually self-deferential, and more often than not, hypocritical snap judgments we make about somebody. You know, they come to the church, they're, they're, they sit down, their kids act a little wild, and immediately, up, oh, they're not disciplining their kids. They're not doing a good job. We may not even form the sentence, but that, that we feel that. Or, you know, someone comes in looking a little raggedy, and you make a judgment. Or someone speaks a little more rough around the edges, and you've already judged their intellect and their intelligence. You, you, you know the drill. We do it. We do it, sadly, more often than not. But, but the real thing here that he, I think he's drawing attention to are those, those moral-type judgments where he's, people are writing others off in spite of the sin in their own lives. And Jesus here, I mean, he uses great hyperbole to, to draw attention to it, that we can go through life completely oblivious to our own sin, which, which may be glaring. But we're so keen and quick to find the shortcomings in others. And this, he says, is wrong. And indeed, the judgment we use will be used against us. That hyper-scrupulous willingness to find fault will be leveled at you. But the cure, the cure is to remember back to at the heart that I am an unworthy, wretched, sinful man and my God nonetheless embraces, accepts, and lavishes goodness on me. I don't deserve a single good thing. Gives me so many. How can I then treat others as if their slightest mistake is a mountain of iniquity when I myself would be crushed low by the weight of mine? And that ought to be. That ought to be our perspective. And so prayer at the heart informs and shapes how we can avoid the judgmentalism and how we can be oriented rightly to treat others with the same kindness, the same goodness, the same proactive seeking blessing that we want done for ourselves. But also, the attitude and posture and act of prayer helps us with what Jesus says in verse 6, which is astonishing. It's astonishing what he says when he says, don't, don't give what is holy to dogs and don't cast your pearls before swine lest they turn, trample it underfoot, and attack you. Christian life requires discernment and the fact of the matter is 
I'm, I'm going to say this very gracefully because he uses hyperbole of the highest. There are some people who are literally not worth your time. And Jesus' command here is to positively not waste your time, energy, and expose yourself to the harm that comes from interacting. But we are called to love. We're called to serve. We're how do we know? How do we identify who's going to turn and trample? How do we know who, who is the pig and the dog that he's talking about here? We, we can't just dis ignore it. Ooh, that sounds, that sounds harsh. Nah. Jesus said it. And he said it right after talking about judging and being hasty. Well, once again, even in this, prayer is essential. Because how do we know with wisdom? Well, you don't write someone off the moment you see them. He's, he's clearly talking about people with whom you have some degree of knowledge and exposure. And you have some indicator of their character and, and their behavior and, their, and the type of person they are. And so we are called by God to have the wisdom of, and discernment of character and strength to say my time and my energy are limited. I am not like God who is infinite. Therefore, since I only have 24 hours in a day, and I only have so much energy, I only have so many resources, I'm going to wisely choose not to pour them down the drain with someone who is very clearly going to trample it into the dirt or even turn and attack me. Christ wants you to have discernment and discretion. Christ wants you to avoid the hasty, petty judgmentalism that so pervades the human heart. But he wants you to interact with people with, an, with, with your eyes wide open. Jesus himself, the word of God says, precisely because he knows what's in people, did not disclose himself to all people. Learn from your master. But then, in the same breath, we are to do the good that we want others to do to us. So you have this grand social, the grand instructions for a social ethic that are centered upon, grounded in, and flowing from a robust theology of God and self and others that flows from prayer. So, you want to live a Godward life? Pray. Ask. Seek. Knock. Three verbs of progressing intensity to describe the diligent pursuit of the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Live before the face of your Father. And then the basking afterglow, treat others the way you want to be treated. For as Jesus says, this is the law 
and the prophets. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the fact that you hear our prayers and we can be confident of your having heard us. And we can rest easy knowing that you are benevolent and delight in meeting the needs of your children. Lord, free us from hasty judgmentalism. Develop within us discerning wisdom. And give us gracious hearts that long to do the good that we want done to us. All as the overflow of your goodness that you have lavished upon us. Grant that in every way we would be presented mature in Christ at the final day. For his sake we pray this. Amen.